Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. If you have been a part of our community, you know that I always take an opportunity before I bring on our guest co-hosts to read their official bio. This is important to me because I want people to know their accolades, their experience, the credentials in which they show up to today's conversation. And it also just helps us to have a better insight into um, what we can expect from this hour of time visiting with our guest co-host. And so my guest co-host today is Dr. Ann Powell-Smith. And she is the CEO and founder of Reflection Point. Reflection Point unlocks collective intelligence by guiding small groups through facilitated discussions of short stories to build bridges, flip perspectives, and deepen shared understanding. Reflection Point has worked with organizations all over the world to foster inclusion, innovation, and collaboration, and has also served as principal with Hydric and Struggles International and strategy expert with McKinsey and Company. Prior to joining McKinsey and practice corporate and securities law in private and corporate settings, and earned her AB from Brian Maher College, her MA from University of Michigan, and both her JD and DBA from Case Western Reserve University. Her dissertation examined organizational learning and innovation, and her work has been featured in peer-reviewed articles and journals, the New York Times, Crane's Cleveland Beast Business, Financial Times, Harvard Business Review, and also Forbes. And she and I both learned today that one of the points we have in common is that we both our Forbes contributors. And so look forward to um, hearing about some of the topics that she is um, centering in her Forbes articles and getting you connected to how you can be exposed to those articles. So I'm going to stop sharing my screen now, and I'm going to help spotlight our guest co-host today so that she can greet you in her own way. And um, Anne, I've already prepared you for this, but I will I will lead in by sharing that while we've read your credentials and your bio, um, one of the other things that we like to do is also make sure that this community can um, hear some things that maybe we wouldn't find in your bio or even in your profile on LinkedIn that helps us just to connect and know you a little bit better. So Anne, I'm going to turn the floor over to you and invite you to greet this audience in your own way. Welcome, Anne. Thank you, Nika. I'm thrilled to be here and, um, and delighted to be with everybody today and hope that we can have a really robust conversation. Um, <laughs> I think to introduce myself in my own way, I think one of the things that may not come through um, in my bio is that I'm really an idea junkie, geek, if you will. I love ideas. I love new ideas. I love learning. Um, and I really am most excited about ideas that I, that I come across in ways that I least expect them, right? So things that you don't necessarily think about in the same breath or ideas that I learned from other people. And uh, so it's a really, it's, it's exciting for me to be on a journey where I can be learning every single day. I love that. We talk often here on the podcast and about the importance of no matter how experienced you may be around our, you know, cultural humility, cultural intelligence, that we are all constantly learning, unlearning and relearning. Right. And so I share your sentiments about I show up every Friday to this conversation, looking to learn, seeking to learn, expecting to learn. And so um, I'm sure we're all going to learn a lot from you today. So thank you so much and welcome again. So why don't you just share with us what your journey has been so far? It's always interesting for us to hear how people gravitated 
to the work of DEI and how they intersect it with some of the other maybe very specific um, disciplines that they um, find themselves um, offering and involved in. So tell us about your career path and, um, and how did you transition into the work that you're doing today? So um, as you could tell from the from the bio that, that you shared, Nika, my career path has been uh, full of twists and turns, um, which I'm kind of proud of. I mean, I think going into it, it's always a little bit um, interesting to see what's going to happen on the next turn. But I think what, what took me to DEI, and, and DEI plays a major role in the work that we do at Reflection Point, has been not a place where I started, but a place where I've transitioned to. But the transition has really been an organic one, right? It hasn't, it hasn't been forced. So, so Reflection Point was always, right from the beginning, about enabling people to, uh, to hear voices that they didn't necessarily hear to stop and to realize that there's an awful lot of ideas, there are an awful lot of voices, there are an awful lot of perspectives that for whatever reason, we tend not to hear. And so it was always about amplifying voices and helping us to each make the contribution that we deserve to make in the world. But it probably started all the way back when I was a lawyer. Um, when, I, when I joined the profession as a lawyer right out of college and then, and then law school, um, I was pretty privileged. I was pretty educated. I, I went into a law firm. I felt like I was you know, really on top of the world. And I remember multiple times when um, I would hit these sort of moments that left me speechless, right? So um, the time I worked with a bunch of older men who... Um, on a deal where I was part of selling a shopping center, when I asked them some questions that were really specific about a transaction to sort of really understand what was happening, they looked at me and said, did you do this work yourself or did somebody help you, right? Um, and yeah. I'm thinking, wait a minute, what's that about? Or, um, or one of my favorite moments when I had a colleague, um, another older male partner in a law firm, tell me that um, his wife had packed his suitcase on a business trip that we were on and he wasn't sure he could pack it on the way home and would I be willing to pack his suitcase for him like his wife did, you know. So I remember thinking from the beginning that no matter how much of an education you have, no matter how much you have to contribute, that the way people see you isn't always the way you see yourself, right. And I thought to myself, from those days, early days on, I realized how often um, we underestimate people. And I think that that journey um, of experience as well as sort of learning and education has helped me to say, you know, DEI really matters. It really, really mm -hmm. matters. And it matters very broadly. It matters for all of us because we all have something important to contribute. And until we can really clearly engage with new ideas, we are not going to be able to build the kinds of bridges that we need to tackle an uncertain future together. No, I, I appreciate that, Anne. And so from one bridge builder to the next, mm -hmm. all that you're sharing is really resonating with me. I love the name Reflection Point. Um, as I was reading your bio, I took notice of flip perspectives. And, and I love that language. I'm a person that I'm big on words. And, and I think that um, I perceive that that probably was very intentionally placed within your bio and probably language that finds its way into a lot of how in which you show up to this work. And so I just want to unpack that for a second. Flip perspectives, because I often hear um, perspective sharing, perspective taking, right? But when we talk about flipping perspectives, what in essence are we communicating? I think the most important piece of that expression and why we do actually use yeah. it very yeah. is that it's very easy to get caught up in our bubbles, right? It's very easy for us to see a world through our own life experience, our own education, and to assume that what we see is in fact 
the truth, the reality. Um, and that my reality and your reality and somebody else's reality are actually very, very different. Um, and I think that it's not that there are alternative facts or that there are different truths that are out there, but that our life experience colors us in so many ways. And that if we can't open ourselves up to seeing the world through another set of eyes, mm -hmm. then we lose the breadth, we lose the ability to learn and grow together. Um, yeah. And so it's more than just perspective sharing and perspective taking. I think we sometimes need to literally try to stand in somebody else's shoes as much as we possibly can and really yeah. try to understand the world that they're seeing at the same time that we look at the world through our own. Yeah, very well stated. And you're right. When it comes to lived experiences, you know, we, we can't, um, you know, very precisely be able to understand and to 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 really um, engage in a way that allows us to, you know, to address all of the emotions and all of the things that may have been coming up for people while they were going through that experience. But I do believe that to your point, if we can get as proximate as possible to those lived experiences by engaging in the storytelling exercise, being vulnerable to share our own stories, as well as listen to other stories, and it certainly can help us bridge that gap. And, uh, and it can be a really um, big difference maker. So um, I appreciate that. I'm watching the chat and I don't want to ignore that. The story you shared about, you know, the gentleman asking for you to unpack his suitcase has really uh, caught the attention of many in this community. And I agree, that would have given me pause as well. So, uh, but yeah, that those are some real scenarios that while it may be very jarring to hear that um, people are exposed to, you know, on a, on a, on a daily. And so, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to minimize the reactions that are coming forth into the chat. Okay, so at what point in your career and did you decide that you wanted to start Reflection Point? And what did the journey to business ownership look like for you? Um, I just want to add to the suitcase thing. I did say no, just to make sure that nobody wondered if I packed his suitcase or not. For um, so just in I, case you're wondering. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I just want to make it really clear. You know, I had the psychological safety <laughs> thing back then. Um, the journey to Reflection Point came, um, oh, I think about 20 years into my career. Um, and part of it came from the fact that as I was reflecting back on the things that were important to me, that this idea of lifelong learning really mattered and that learning something new, I've been in client service my whole life, right? It's been being a lawyer, being a consultant, that the pleasure of being able to learn about what my clients are looking for, what they need, this was something that really energized me on a regular basis. But then I realized how many voices or how many people we don't get a chance to learn from and how many people don't really have lifelong learning embedded in the nature of the work that they do. Mm. And so Reflection Point was really born of this idea that if we can learn more about each other, and if we can learn more from people who have a lot of life experience that I believe is a form of personal wisdom that is different than ours, then it only enriches us all. It enriches us individually, it enriches us as teams, and it also enriches us as organizations. And so that was the gist of, um, of the work. We started about 12 years ago, Nice. Um, and it's been a learning journey of its own, right? Because um, <laughs> when you talk to a leader and you say, you know, I'm going to bring a story and a facilitator into your organization and people can talk to each other across hierarchies, across functions and within teams, often oh, they will raise an, yeah, they'll look at you and raise an eyebrow. But um, I think uh, being tenacious about it has been an important part of the journey. 
No, that's great. And I think that storytelling has um, garnered a lot of attention, you know, of late in the most recent years that people are a bit more open to the idea of storytelling as a way to, you know, build bridges. And so um, I'm, I would imagine that probably you're getting, you know, fewer eyebrows to raise when, when those conversations or those invitations are being entertained. Um, I love that you talked about the continuous learning and what I have seen in my space, and you probably have seen this too, is that with the clients we work with at NWC, those who have better ability to have impact from some of the learning experiences that are being offered through different modalities is because they have already adopted and embedded into their culture this, this learning, continual learning type of um, mentality. And so I, I, the connection point there has been very evident to me and the fact that you brought it to the conversation, I just wanted to amplify that. So I wanna talk as we stay here on reflection point, I wanna talk about collective intelligence, right? I was not familiar with that language until like kind of you know reading some of your work and following your work. But your organization, you really build very intentionally on building inclusive and collaborative teams, but you do that by strengthening what you refer to as collective intelligence. So let's unpack that. What is collective intelligence and why is it important to the workplace? Absolutely. So collective intelligence is actually a scientifically validated idea. There's lots of research out there on what it means. And it, it's really looking at whether or not there are factors that can determine whether a group of people can solve a challenge or tackle a problem together better than another group of people. You know, it's very close to IQ if you think about it, right? IQ, yeah. whether you believe in it or not, is a measure that dictates whether or not, you know, that, that engages or that helps you to understand whether somebody's able to solve a problem. What I love about collective intelligence though, is that unlike IQ, it's not about being smart. So the most collectively intelligent teams are not the teams of people that are the smartest brought together or where, you know, like in school where there's one smart person who does all the work. Um, really the most collectively intelligent teams are the ones who work better together. It's all about the connective tissue between the members of the team. And it doesn't really have to do with the intelligence of the team members themselves. And I love this idea because it means that you can take teams, very diverse teams with very different kinds of backgrounds. And if you can strengthen the connective tissue that holds them together, then you can make unstoppable teams. Um, and I think that this is a really important thing to think about. Companies tend not to think about investing in the spaces between people, and yet it's very much in the spaces between people that the gems, the, the real power exists. And so based on that science, we've done a lot of research and a lot of looking at, well, what does collective intelligence look like if you go to try to build it, right? Yeah. So for us, collective intelligence is really a very intentional set of five skills that include listening with humility, asking good and curious questions, like really good questions, not gotcha questions that prove what you already know, but questions that, that are willing to show people that you don't know. The third is challenging your assumptions. And it gets back to what we talked about before on flipping perspectives. You have to be willing to flip your perspective before you're going to. The fourth is disagreeing with respect and without retribution. And that's, I think, where psychological safety comes yes. in. We hear a lot about psychological safety in the workplace. And the fifth is widening the circle of empathy. Because I think mm -hmm. despite all our best intentions, what we know about empathy is that we tend to feel empathy for people who look like us or people that we know. Um, and so by broadening the circle, 
of people that we know, um, it really helps us to be far more understanding and far more willing to have each other's backs, right? So that is so rich. I love that. That is so rich. And so um, it sounds like part of um, the the value and the power here is really finding that common ground, those common values where respect and humanity is kind of centered in order for collective intelligence to really have the the optimized output that I know that it's it's intended. Um, and what's interesting to me, Anne, and I, you may have received this question before, but oftentimes when we think about diversity, we think about people with difference coming together, then it is, it's not uncommon for people to realize that in those differences can also exist conflict because of the difference. And I love that what collective intelligence helps to refute is that very point. It's not just about diversity in and of itself, it is effective management of that difference and that diversity. And part of managing it, it sounds like, from what you just shared, is finding that common ground, finding those value sets, and then addressing, you know, those um, five um, key pillars that you mentioned that is that is very much um, aligned with this whole collective intelligence um, perspective. And so I that was just really rich. I wanted to kind of round out what I was hearing to make sure that I'm tracking with you. No, and you are. I think it's it's also really important to know that it's not only managing the diversity, but also leveraging diversity, right? Because yes. um, there's research in this collective intelligence space um, in the academy that shows that diverse teams do struggle, right? Because they're yeah. so inherent different. Right. People see things in very different ways. But if you can build the social sensitivity, if you can have the balanced turn-taking, if you can really honor the diversity that's in the team, which is inherently a part of collective intelligence, then diverse teams do even better. And so it's really powerful to enable us to not only take make diverse teams, bring them to the table, but actually allow them to actually have real impact because we're allowing that diversity to really influence and affect the, the decisions that we make in business every day. Yeah, no, I love that. So I'm watching the chat and I want to you know, bring forth some of the, the comments that um, the community here is sharing. So Tracy has added, and by the way, Tracy, thank you for the introduction. Um, Anne is here because you recommended her, but she says collective intelligence is inclusive intelligence. I would agree with that. Um, Alfred Ramirez says he wanted to bring up transferable skills from life experiences and coupling them with other learning, which goes back to when we were talking about, again, people's lived experiences and how the value of that. Um, and the collective intelligence is a way that is different from groupthink. Yes, Alfred, I appreciate that. You know, when we're all thinking alike, we're not really thinking. That's what groupthink is. And so um, I love that collective intelligence really helps to amplify that 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 intelligence and that those aha moments is not because we all agree. It is about how we leverage again to your point those differences to make sure that the the output is as strong as it possibly can be. And so lots of other good stuff that's happening into the chat. Before we move on from collective intelligence, I want to make sure that we capture for this community those five key pillars once again. And so I'm going to ask my team that um, as I kind of regurgitate and you correct me if I don't have the language precisely right, and that we place them into the chat. So I heard listening with humility. I love that. I also heard asking good questions. That one really gave me pause because I talk often about how I think that as a society, we spend way too much time making definitive statements and not nearly enough time being curious and asking thoughtful questions. So I love that one, uh, you know, asking thoughtful questions, challenging assumptions, 
You know, I think that's really important as well. Interrogating, why is this coming up for me? What does this mean? Am I assuming positive intent here, right? So I like that, challenging assumptions and then disagree with respect. That's key because again, there is value in healthy conflict, right? And so if we can't disagree respectfully, then people are not going to feel a sense of safety and bringing forth different perspectives. And so I love that one too, disagree with respect. And then um, the last one, widening our sense of empathy. Am I saying these all correctly? Okay. I love I those. But sense is good too, because I think it's all about expanding, right? Yeah, I love that. Okay. No, that's awesome. That's fantastic. Okay. So um, I want to thank you. My colleague has placed those into the chat. So thank you so very much. So I want to um, lean a little bit more into this notion of storytelling. Um, we've already kind of referenced that that's a really big part of your messaging platform and how you show up to this work. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about why storytelling is, um, is essential, specifically when you're building teams and strengthening existing teams, because there are some people that are persuasive my personal stories it's my personal life I don't want to bring that into the workplace and so I'm not going to go there how yeah. do you reconcile those who have that that thought process well I think if you were to get a group of people together and say okay everybody tell your story it's awkward <laughs> on a good day and disastrous on a bad right so um I think one of the things that makes reflection point so magical is that we start in a story that we share with everybody and it's usually a piece of literature it's a really yeah. high quality short story. It's always narrative. Uh, it's not an article or a podcast. It's not a, um, a how-to piece. It's always a story. It can be old. It can be new. One of the things I love is that we can show the very contemporary nature of a hundred-year-old story, but we can also bring forth voices that people don't read in school. So it brings diversity mm -hmm. to the equation. So we start in a story. And the reason we do that is that stories are an incredible way of leveling the playing field, right? So yeah. if you want your CEO to speak to somebody who, who's on the front line, there are very few things that they can share in common where they can speak to each other human to human, but a story will do that. A story enables them to leave their expertise at the door, engage with each other authentically and in a balanced way. And what stories also do is they invite us to step into the shoes of a character, um, they highlight things that we recognize or find relevant mm -hmm. from our own personal stories. And then it enables you to share the part of your story that you might be willing to share, right? We're not asking everybody to bear everything, but we're saying, you know, maybe there's something in this story mm -hmm. that really resonates with you, the actions of a character, um, a particular experience. So stories tend to invite the sharing of those stories by others. And before you know it, the story morphs and changes based on people's perspectives and the conversation that ensues. And so for mm. me, those stories become this incredible platform and jumping off point, but more importantly, they're a really safe place to practice, right? So the five skills yeah. that I teach you about, they really are important in the workplace. Yeah. I didn't learn those, those skills in school. I'm assuming that you didn't have classes in those skills in school. So we need to find places and spaces that we can take the risk down, but create spaces where we can practice or we can disagree. And we will intentionally pick stories that will, you know, cause some disagreement or create some ambiguity. And it gives people practice in some really meaningful ways. I love that. I love that. It reminds me, Anne, of um, an experience that we did at NWC, where as part of a learning experience, 
um, we opened it up with um, this impromptu storytelling exercise where we gave kind of the first liner and then everyone else had to build the story by adding on to it. And then we had like this, you know, story that was that was um, that encompassed so many different thoughts and perspectives of this collective team. And it was it was quite an exercise, but um, it, it it certainly did a lot of what you mentioned. It helped people to flip perspectives. Why well, even think about that as being a, a direction to take this story? But that must be something that you you align with or maybe something that you've experienced. And so it was really it was really interesting. Um, so let's talk about how leaders can coach their teams and using the power of storytelling and, and conversation to share more about themselves and, and to do so to help build camaraderie, to help build a sense of community with their coworkers. What are some of those strategies that you often coach leaders around to do that? So I think probably the most important strategy for leaders is first and foremost to model it, right? To yeah. If, if a leader really wants an open and thoughtful and sharing team, then they're going to have to be open and thoughtful and sharing as well. Right? <laughs> and I think um, the leaders who do this work the most successfully are the ones, and we, had, we actually had a, 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 pres a client, a president of an organization that used to say, it, it helps us to separate our ideas from our egos, right? And I think if you have a leader who's willing to say, I'm going to put my ego aside, and really engage to get to know people, it really, it really matters, right? It really helps yeah. people be more authentic. When I did my doctoral work um, on organizational learning, a big chunk of it was about how leaders use conversation. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I discovered in the research was that many leaders will say, oh, I get a group together and we have a conversation. I'm looking for ways to help shape this strategy and I'm looking for ideas to emerge. But what really happens is they go in and they say, here are the three things that I think we have to do. And I'm looking for validation for those ideas. Uh, yeah. They, what they know is the right thing to do and what they actually do is not always the same. And so I think one of the things that leaders need to do is to check whether or not their own intention is an intention of learning and growing and engaging with people. And then they have to open their minds to, um, to where these ideas can come from. I mean, it's it's not a it's not a hierarchy. Ideas don't fall into a hierarchy, and we mm -hmm. see this in Reflection Point all the time. That sometimes the most insightful idea, well, rarely does the most insightful idea come from the person with the biggest education or the highest sort of job right. category in the room. Right. It tends to come from the places where you least expect it, and so mm -hmm. people can see that there are really amazing ideas residing in corners of your workplace that you're not even thinking about. And they create a space for those ideas to come forth. Well, then you only amplify and grow the possibilities, right? So I think for, for leaders, the, the most advice is participate, you know, don't make this yeah, something model. other people do and model and be a little bit yeah. more. There's something that, you know, share your own mistakes, share the things that you know, you wish you could have done differently now that you're older and wiser um, and invite others to do the same. Yeah, participate, model, show vulnerability and um, open the door and the space for others to feel safe in sharing their ideas. Yeah, as you were talking about the, the validation piece, you know, I don't know if that's the same as like confirmation bias, but I, it does show up quite often, you know, and I think that leaders, and, I, and I've done it myself several times, but I think that as leaders, sometimes we feel like, we need to have at least a foundation upon which others then can build upon. But you know what you're saying is sometimes there's great value and power in just quieting the ego altogether and letting the ideas kind of organically 
surface from those in which you are um, engaging. Um, so I, I love that. I mentioned when I was giving your um, your bio, sharing your bio, that we both work for um, or write for Forbes, both are Forbes contributors, and you have a recent Forbes article that you wrote that touches on companies building diverse teams, and you talk specifically about the importance of investing in psychological safety when you're building those um, diverse teams. And so what are some ways that you have seen that companies are really prioritizing psych safety and making it um, core to to how and which teams are interacting and, and producing outcomes. Yeah. It's interesting. Psychological safety still makes um, a little bit, people's hair stand on end a little bit. I'm always amazed when people say, well, you know, psychological, that doesn't belong in the workplace, right? So I think yeah. the, the, the companies that or the leaders that are doing a good job are the ones that are speaking to it, that are saying, you know, psychological safety is important to us. And it's important to us because it's really fundamentally a driver of learning, right? So yeah. for an organization that wants to be a learning organization, that wants to innovate, that wants to grow, that wants to expand, then you can't do that without psychological safety. Right. It's not about empowering people to say things that are hurtful and mean and then protecting them in the process, right? It's not that. It's not also about being super nice and caring and, and not... Um, not speaking up when somebody makes a mistake. You know, there's a there's a frightful study that that I often quote when I talk about psychological safety. A study was done that said that 90% of nurses would not speak up to a doctor and tell them that they're doing something wrong, even if a patient's life is at risk. 90% oh, yeah. of nurses. Yeah. Right? For all of us that have been in a situation where there's a nurse and a doctor. If that's the case, you know, it's really, really, really scary. And it gets to all of the ways in which industries and their hierarchies and their compliance and all the things that they do can actually speak against um, psychological safety. So I think the organizations that do this well are the ones that say it's about learning. We're going to try really hard to suspend the hierarchies and to create opportunities for people to speak to each other in different ways such that they can learn that it's okay to make a mistake. They celebrate making mistakes. They create learning meetings instead of decision meetings. They they find ways to invite people and then to celebrate the times that people give an alternative perspective that may not necessarily be what a leader is looking for. Um, but when they learn something that they're not looking for, they learn something very powerful. It's very easy to tell a leader what they want to know. It's much harder to tell a leader what they don't wanna know. And yeah. um, those that make themselves available for that um, are the ones that are really making a concerted effort to build the psychological safety in their organizations. So much that you shared in that. Again, I love language, so I pay attention to words, and I love how you phrased, um, you know, learning, um, learning meetings versus decision meetings. And we are always trying to solve. And what in our, you know, intent to solve, we are trying to make decisions. But I love, you know, coming to those meetings and really setting the tone that we're not making decisions right now. We're learning, and we want everyone to share. I think that's really important. And as you were talking about psych safety, I think this community probably is familiar with um, Amy Edmondson, who actually coined the phrase and did a lot of work around it. And it has now, while it started from a healthcare you know, perspective, it now has become this really big phenomenon that all types of organizations are really trying to center as part of creating that sense of belonging. Um, lots is happening into the chat. And mm -hmm. um, there's uh, there's someone in the community that just asked about questions. And so I will be transitioning momentarily to take questions from the audience for our guest co-host today. And you can 
present your question and let us know that you're interested in doing so by using the raise hand feature if you're part of this Zoom virtual community. Or if you're on LinkedIn Live, you can place your question into the comments and my team is going to be pulling those into our Zoom community so that we can also make sure those questions are a part of our conversation with the time that we have left. And so I will give you an opportunity to think about maybe some of the curiosities you're holding uh, while I go to the next question. But again, just make sure that if you're interested, you let us know. We'll be more than happy to bring you into the conversation. So I want to talk now about um, the consequences of companies who view inclusion as a program or an initiative um, instead of as something that needs to be fully embedded, fully integrated and operationalized and non-negotiable um, in terms of working together. Um, and right now, I know that there are many organizations as they find themselves really trying to brace for the uncertainty of the economy, they're pulling those budgets away. And so what, what are you saying to those organizations right now, Anne? Well, I think this is a crisis that we're seeing that because we framed inclusion and it goes back quite a ways, even from fairly well intended individuals, we framed inclusion as a social activity, a social imperative and not a business imperative. And I think that by separating it from business, we made it an initiative, we made it an event, but we made it extracurricular and we made it excisable as soon as economic exigencies meant that we didn't have time or money to focus on those things. And that that is really a tragedy. But if you think about these skills of collective intelligence, which I believe in my heart fully are the ways in which we can create the most inclusive teams, these are also the ways in which we can build the most collaborative teams and the most innovative teams. Because at the end of the day, inclusion is a non-negotiable part of working together. It's not some of us are in, but all, we're not all in. You know, We're gonna take the opinions of some, but not the opinions of others. We're going to take the perspective of some and not the perspective of others. If we operate that way, we'll never be successful. And so if we think about inclusion less as an initiative on the side that can be excised and more as a fundamental piece of effective collaboration and effective growth, then if we cut inclusion and we cut diversity programs, then we're making a huge, really existential yeah. mistake in the future of our organizations. I think that's the that's the piece that we have to be focused on. I think it's really to, to make inclusion something extra um, is to make it into something that it shouldn't be. It needs to yeah. be, it's the heartbeat of the organization. Yeah, it is. It's the core, it's the heartbeat. I love how you put that. It goes back to what you said before, where we are accustomed to having a lot of um, you know decision meetings and not enough learning meetings. And I think that where organizational leaders can help um, ensure that there is a strong commitment to the work of DEI, even in you know this this type of space where um, there's a lot of economic uncertainty, is that it, it needs to begin with the learning meeting to understand where is there consensus around the value set of this? How are we all defining those terms? How do we see this manifesting itself in our organization? And letting those conversations to help inform the guiding principles of how in which now this is going to show up throughout the organization. Um, and then you follow it up with a decision meeting to, to really land on that and say, okay, this is how we know that this is really happening the way that we intend for it to. And that's part of really aligning on what are those non-negotiables versus what are those areas where we really can feel like um, it's okay for us to kind of lean into the both and and recognizing the nuances there. Um, so really good discussion. So there's a question that's in the chat, and um, I'm probably not pronouncing this name correctly, but I think I think it is Michelle. Um, but thanks so much for your question. And here is what the question is. Can we talk a bit more about safety 
As a leader, I found people exit conversations with me or other colleagues because they say they don't feel safe. By this, what's clear from a generation younger than mine is by safety. So she's asking, what does safety mean exactly? These folks seem to mean that they feel disagreed with and that makes them feel uncomfortable. Great question. So what would you say to that, Dr. Ann? <laughs> well, I wonder if that is the underlying issue there is a safety issue or truly an inability to disagree. You know, I think there um, <laughs> we're living in a society right now where disagreement is so galvanizing, right? We talk about cancel yeah. culture. We have so linked what how we define our identities to what it is that we believe that when somebody gives us something that challenges what we believe, it challenges our very existence. It challenges our very identity. And, um, and I worry that we have allowed ourselves to get to a place where because we don't practice disagreement that doesn't have horrific consequences, we have enabled people to say, oh, I, I can't hear that because I don't agree, right? Yeah. Um, not, um, not I believe that when I see it, it's I see it when I believe it, right? People, people don't believe something, they don't wanna see that there's something else out there. And so I, I think that if we frame it as safety, we end the conversation. If we frame it as opening the opportunity to practice disagreement and to learn new skills for us to be able to open ourselves up to something else, then we might be able to expand the problem. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think it's not going to, it's not an overnight solution, right? It's not a one and done. Um, mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons to your point, Nika, that inclusion isn't just an event, right? You can't fix that right. in a single event. You have to continually sort of practice that muscle of yeah. engaging and disagreeing and realizing that, you know, your point and my point may not align, but it could create something even more powerful together. Absolutely. Yeah. Building up that muscle so that it becomes easier when you find yourself, you know, confronted with the need to, to pull out those superpowers and those skill sets as you're navigating those conversations. You know, you said earlier that um, psych safety is not about, you know, the nice, the niceties of helping people just feel all warm and fuzzy, right? It's not coddling. And so what comes up for me as I think about this question is maybe sometimes people on the receiving end that's what they're seeking. And so I think that bringing clarity to, we need to speak truth to power. We need to do it respectfully. We, we need to not just tell people what we think they want to hear in that moment. Um, you know, and it's something that I know we have at NWC really tried to embed into our culture. One of our core values is constructive candor for that very reason. We all need to be able to name the hard things, talk about the hard things. Um, and where I am learning and growing, and this goes back to some of what you shared, Anne, is that sometimes I think the resistance to the feedback is, is in those times where maybe leaders don't know what to do with that information. Maybe it's because they feel like, I don't have any control to change that. So why are we talking about it? But what I have come to understand is that there's a lot of power and the acknowledgement of it and giving people the space to name it. Even if nothing can't be done, it's like you're empathizing with them around uh, and validating that it's something that they're holding, right? So Wanted to offer, wanted to offer that. Yeah, go ahead. And I think you're, I think you hit on something really important. And that is that we need to learn how to be uncomfortable sometimes, right? Because yes. it's only through yeah. our discomfort that we challenge ourselves to learn new things. And so if we, if we use safety as a shield um, and, not, and sometimes even as a weapon to keep ourselves from having to confront things that make us uncomfortable, then we're not going to learn and grow, right? We, we we're not going to learn and grow. Yeah. We're not going to really move the needle 
on issues of diversity and inclusion, on challenging issues of, you know, what do we do with AI and how do we think about the world in a world full of pandemics and climate change? There's a lot of big problems that are going on. And we aren't going to be able to figure out how to solve those problems unless we really rock our souls and try to figure out what is it that makes us uncomfortable and how can we get past that together? I know, I know. I see your hand, Lynn Ward. I'm coming to you um, in just a second. Um, I wanna make this, this point really quickly because you touched on it, Anne, that discomfort is something that is a big barrier and hurdle for a lot of organizations. And what I mean by that is it is pretty routine that often when we are um, engaged in partnering with clients, part of their angst and their anxiety around the journey ahead has everything to do with, well, people in our organization, they're really uncomfortable about this topic. They just don't know. And so their, their, their disposition is we need to help them feel comfortable. We need to help bring them along in a way that doesn't allow them to feel, you know, isolated or when that becomes hard because of the very reason that you said we need that some level of that discomfort in order for us to really be able to um, create some type of change that can be impactful. And so just wanted to, to share you know, that. Um, after the murder of George Floyd, we had a lot of people come to us and say, can you bring us stories about race? You know, can you, yeah. can you share something? But, but here's what we'd like. We want something about race. We want it to really be trenchant. We want it to really show the inequities, but we, could we, could it be cheerful? <laughs> Does it have to be so doom and gloom? Does it have to be real? Right, exactly. So yeah, we're going to make an, uh, anyway, I, they, those yeah. would often leave me somewhat speechless. No, I, I'm with you on that. So I have, um, I brought uh, Lynn Roy Jones into the spotlight. It's good to see you, friend. Thanks for being here. You're one of our repeat community members. And so we're always grateful, but share your comment or questions at this yeah, it's time. Great to be, it's great to be here. And you're you're actually well into the direction that I, I wanted to just go a little bit in this particular area. And when you, you talked about it coming up and then the weapon using as a weapon, um, and so you've you're already started that it's been so a rich conversation listening to and now getting into some of the questions and I'm just loving the chat also the the discomfort equals growth and we can always assume that someone is saying they don't feel safe that it's always uh -huh. being used as a it's it's all always being used as a weapon yeah. um, and my question really was getting to that and and it's been such a solution driven conversation today which is great um, to, to how do you help people? Um, are you seeing any of the research at all that really gets into this to let people know that, hey, we are aware of what you're doing because um, careers have been derailed because someone said, I don't feel safe. And it was a weaponized type of situation versus really that they didn't feel, they, they knew exactly what they were doing because that backs off the person. It freezes, it immobilizes, it's very debilitating when someone says that, but that's the reality that has been going on for some time now. You know, um, it's like the days when someone said you were a racist, that would immobilize that person when you really need to have a sincere, candid conversation about the behavior that the person is exhibiting versus just trying to push back the person. So anything in terms of um, research, I'm interested in just if you tapped into that, but I love the positivity and the solution driven conversation today. It is, and it's not that it's not been done, but in particular about this, um, these five pillars and how you need to do it. And the last thing I'll just add and then turn it back over to you to respond is that I'm, I'm just convinced that we really need to not just say leadership, but we need to really talk about and emphasize being inclusive leaders. 
that's what we need. Yeah. And, and I think my leaders at all levels too, right? Because I think we think of leaders, we assume there's going to be a CEO or a senior right. leader who solves all the problems. And I think in many ways, we tend to overestimate what a leader can do. Um, and, and when a leader leaves, you know, the things that they've done go away if we give it too much to that individual leader. But to get back to your question, which I think is a really interesting one, Lenroy, um, I don't, I can't think of research off the top of my head, but I will do a little bit of digging. And if I can find something, then I can, um, I can get it to you through, through Nika and, and the Intentional Conversations team. But I do think that this weaponization of psychological safety is a problem. I don't think it was ever intended that way. Um, I don't think Amy Edmondson intends it that way. And she's written quite a few things to say, you know, this is not, it's it's not safe, saving you from discomfort. It's not saving you yes. from having to do the hard work. It's not saving your job, right? I mean, she's literally written to say, it's, it's not going to protect you from a layoff. That's not psychological safety. But I think if we frame these things in terms of how we can learn, and, um, you know, it's interesting, we just, we just recently this week had a um, a working session, a learning session with a bunch of our facilitators, because we facilitate these conversations about stories. And one of the facilitators was sharing a comment that somebody made. This is a, a story that we used. It's a young Ethiopian writer. Her name is Marin Hedero. Her work is incredible. And she wrote a book called um, uh, uh, something, oh, sorry, I can't remember the title, but it has to do with um, two young Ethiopian women who come to America and they're trying to make their way and it's called a down-home meal for these difficult times. And they use cooking and their friendship and they use sort of what they have in common, what the, where they've come from and then where they're going and they use all this to create tremendous friendship. And somebody in the group that they were facilitating talked about the fact that they were surprised that these Ethiopian women showed up in America with shoes because they thought that they'd be so poor that they wouldn't have any shoes, right? So immediately, the hackles got on the back of, of this person's neck mm -hmm. and she thought, oh, wait a minute, maybe this person is making a statement or a comment or showing a bias that's really dangerous. But, but I've been reflecting on it since the conversation came up and it, it made me realize that this person by having the honesty to say, oh, I was really surprised that these two Ethiopian women were wealthy in Ethiopia and poor in America and not poor in Ethiopia and therefore they were coming to save themselves mm -hmm. here, that it was a perspective flip, um, Nika, that really helped them to see that maybe the world that they were envisioning was wrong. And this question or this comment that they made may have not been articulated in a perfect way, but it opened the conversation to the fact that they had seen something differently and then others could come in and say, well, maybe there's another way to think about this. And all of a sudden you're having a real conversation. So to me, that that's a sign of safety that somebody can actually make a mistake and realize, okay, the others are going to have my back. And we try really hard when we facilitate to enable those things to, to happen and to play out because none of us is born with the ability to say the perfect thing that will never offend anybody, right? right? right. Um, and we're always going to back our way into something that we don't mean quite the way we said it the first time. But if we give people a chance to say it the second time or to think about it a different way or to be guided by a colleague or by a peer in a non-threatening situation, then I'm hoping that one of the things that we can do is de-weaponize this idea of, of oh my God, um, it's not safe anymore because somebody said something that I'm not sure whether I'm supposed to hear that or, or, or learn about it. And I certainly can't say anything, you know? So it's, um, it's a messy business. Um, and the messiness is what makes it uncomfortable, but I think it's also what makes it so powerful and important. 
Thanks so much, Lynn Boy. And um, and Amy and Anne, if you do find some additional um, you know, resources, um, Lynn Boy did share his LinkedIn, but we're also happy to distribute it to, to um, this community as well. So thanks so much for being here. Um, I'm so glad that we uh, were able to touch on the weaponization of you know psych safety because I don't think that's a conversation that we have enough. Yeah. And I too see it every single day. And um, and I think that it is created part of what many will say, DEI is not working, it's not effective, it's a distraction, we need to get rid of it. It's because of all the misinformation that people are now consuming about some of these terms that are surfacing as part of the broad, you know, DEI conversation. So um, in the chat, Tracy says, we need to understand the nuance between discomfort and trauma. And that really spoke to me because yes, we, you know, even that is a word that's tossed around very freely these days. I, I'm traumatized and I don't want to, you know, um, minimize the fact that there are a lot of people who really are dealing with some serious, you know, trauma. Right. Um, but I, I also believe that it is important as we have these conversations to help appeal to people the need for interrogating what those feelings are to make sure that it is it is being um, it is being understood in the right way. Sometimes it is just I'm uncomfortable because, you know, this was very constructive and it didn't feel good in the moment. And, it's, you know, and so anyway, I think that that's a really big conversation that I'm glad has, has surfaced today. You know, I think one of the one of the things I'd love to just add to that point before we move on is sure. that when we anonymize things, when we talk about things in a concept over here, it's very easy to be critical and uncomfortable and, you know, oh, we can't go there. But the second it's eyeball to eyeball and people are engaged with each other in an interpersonal way, I think it fundamentally changes the dynamic, right? And I love you mentioned at the outset that you have a speaker who's coming to talk about whole person diversity. Um, <laughs> I think that's exactly the right direction that that DEI needs to go right now, that we need yeah. to be thinking about what are the interpersonal ways that we can explore the diversity of our experiences, our expertise, our understanding, our points of view, as opposed to you know, how do we think about this thing as a, a monolithic topic on the silver screen that we can watch, but we don't have to engage with, right? And I think if, mm -hmm. if we watch and don't have to engage, then it's very easy to say, all right, I'm engaging with this, but I'm not engaging with that. But if we're talking to somebody one-on-one, -on -one, you don't have that choice in the same way. And I think it's time that we really prioritize the, the interpersonal and not the anonymous. I agree. Don't you think, though, that the remote nature of work these days, though, makes that a bit more complex? I mean, do you think that that has a lot to do with maybe why this is not a concept that people are gravitating to, maybe to the degree in which people like me and yourself are really hoping yeah. for? Could it be that you know distributed workforce factor? I mean, granted, I can look I can look you eye to eye now, but you know, I do believe that maybe that has impacted how in which people are finding opportunities to really have that interpersonal relationship to be cultivated? I think it is a factor, but I also think it's it's not easy whether you're in person or you're um, in a yeah. digital setting that it always requires a different kind of effort to sort of go to places that are a little bit more uncomfortable or that are not the norm. And I do think it takes just a little bit of extra effort, right? So you know, we find we I, before before March of 2020, Reflection Point yeah. had never been virtual ever. In fact, 
I thought in March, in February of 2020, I would have told you it's impossible, right? By April of 2020, we said, okay, it's, it can't be impossible or else we hang our hats up, right? Right. So started to try. And I'll tell you what's really interesting about the, the virtual space of Zoom is that you and I are as close together as if we were sitting across a small Starbucks table, right? And when you add yeah. 10 people and 12 people and 15 people, there's a there's a, there's a, that eyeball to eyeball feeling is really strong, right? When you're sitting in a room and there's somebody who's playing with their phone under the table and everybody's looking at the most important person in the room, they check out in different ways, right? Not necessarily the same ways, but we have the option to check out no matter where we are. And so the question yeah. is, what can we do to invite people to check in, right? So one is, yeah. right? Cameras are huge. And I was so excited yeah. when I said to people, put your cameras on because you would never walk into a conference room in an, in an office and put a, a bag over your head, but we walk at the video conferences all the time and turn off our camera. So I think there are things that people have to just sort of condition themselves to do to say the landscape is different and we have to make a different kind of effort. Absolutely. Um, Dr. Ann, this has been so enlightening. We're getting to the top of the hour and I want to give you the final 60 seconds or so to first and foremost, make sure that you are receiving our, our gratitude for you being here today. Um, we have shared a lot of your information in today's chat. So I hope that you all will find the time to connect with Dr. Anne and her content and you know reflection point. Um, your LinkedIn information is also placed there. But I want to give you the final few seconds just to close this out in whatever way that feels appropriate. If there's something that you're holding that you didn't get a chance to socialize that you want mm -hmm. us to know, I want to give you that opportunity. I thank you very much. Um, I think that the most important thing is I know that what we do is a little bit unorthodox, you know, by bringing in a facilitated discussion of a story to places where people are incredibly busy and they've got a lot going on. Um, and I just want to say it's really important that we honor and celebrate the diverse voices in all of our organizations, even in the organizations that don't look on their face to be as diverse as they could. There's still a tremendous diversity of perspective and opinion. Um, and I think taking moments like Reflection Point or other ways to engage with people interpersonally is really huge. Um, I would love to invite anybody who's at all interested to reach out to me. We, you know, we do no strings attached demos where you can join a conversation and we'll send you a story and you can participate and see what it feels like. Um, we would love to share the story of sharing stories um, more broadly um, and would love to engage with any and all of you that would be interested in doing them. So thank you very Share much. the story of sharing stories. Thank you so very much, Dr. Ann. And thank you to all of you who've joined us here today. I hope you have a lovely, safe and wonderful weekend. Again, happy Cinco de Mayo. And we look forward to seeing you back here next week for Intentional Conversations podcast. Thank you all. Bye-bye.